Verse 12 of chapter 6, now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose 12, among, he, among whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Where did this calling begin for the disciples? They were called unto Jesus. They were called unto himself. And that's where calling begins for us, is Jesus calls us unto himself for salvation, calls us unto himself for fellowship, where he's pouring his living water into our lives and that living water begins to overflow. We go from being disciples to being apostles, which means to be sent out. Not apostles in the same sense as these 12, but the Holy Spirit identifying what he has called us to do. And what I want to highlight tonight is the fact that the disciples had their problems. They had their brokenness, their sin, their issues, but yet God called them and he used them for his glory. If God would have picked 12 men where their lives were put together, where they seem to be perfect from a human perspective, we wouldn't be able to relate. But instead, he chose four fishermen, Peter leading the way, his brother, and then James and John. Fishermen would not be the ones that you would think that God would raise up to lead the church, that Peter would speak and 3,000 people would get saved. But also there's a tax collector in the mix. Matthew, who was Levi, he's the tax collector for the Roman Empire. God chooses him. He would be rejected by most Israelites, but he's chosen by God. Thomas the doubter, he was the realist of, of the group and wrestled with his doubt, but yet God chose him, chose him to be a disciple and met him in the midst of those doubts. We have a zealot, Simon the Zealot. We don't know a lot about him, but man, he must have been a passionate guy if he was committed to trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Almost a little bit dangerous, a little bit scary to be around. I want to look at a few sections of scripture tonight to highlight God's calling. Who does God call? We're going to start in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26, and then we're going to look at some sections in the Old Testament. So turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, and we see God's calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So there's some that are called by God who from a human perspective, they're wise. They're wise according to the flesh. They're intellectual. They have training from the academic system, but there's not too many of those. And then there's some that God calls that are mighty. They're just physically strong. They, they have endurance. They seem to have more strength than the rest of us, but there's not too many of those. And then there's a few that are called by God that are noble, meaning they're of royalty. And there's not too many of those. There, there's some, but there's not too many. 
the majority of who God calls is verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Who does God call? Who does he choose? He chooses 12 disciples, 12 knuckleheads, 12 12 nobodies, those who are forgotten and on the margins because when God saves them and transforms them and uses them, he gets the glory and the strong are going, I don't get it. In fact, even with the disciples in the book of Acts, they're hearing them speak and they go, these guys have been with Jesus. They said they're untrained, meaning they haven't gone to the traditional theological schools. They're untrained, unlearned men. They're, they're fishermen, but they have been with Jesus. They couldn't deny the fact that they had been with Jesus. So God takes those who are weak. He takes those who are foolish. He takes those that are rejected. He takes those that the world has written off. And he says, that's the one that I'm going to place calling on. I'm going to place calling upon their life for my glory. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. So from the world's perspective, we're weak, we're, we're foolish, but we're in Christ and our strength comes from our position in Christ. And in him, we have become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God chooses men like the disciples, so he receives the glory. So there was a plumber and a lawyer that both got saved at the same time. And the plumber's attitude was, Lord, I'm a simple man. I do plumbing. Poop flows downhill. That's my job. I got I to gotta make sure poop's flowing the right direction. Amen, right? That's, that's a good thing with, with plumbing. I don't know if you can use me, but I'm surrendered to you. I'll follow you. I love you, and I'll, I'll give you the glory. And the lawyer his attitude was, God, I have the golden tongue. I'm an orator. I speak and people listen. I can change people's minds. I know why you would save me. I think you're calling me to teach the word. Who do you think God's going to use more? Absolutely the plumber, right? Absolutely the one that understands. I don't have anything to offer, but God delights in using weak and foolish so that he can be glorified. So we're going to look at three people in the Old Testament that fit these qualifications of being weak and foolish. We're going to look at Moses, we're going to look at Gideon, and then we're going to look at David. So let's go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, and look at Moses. At this point, In Moses' life, he is at a low. He raised up his hand against an Egyptian, killed the Egyptian because the Egyptian was being too harsh with a Hebrew slave. He got out ahead of God. News got out to Pharaoh of what he had done. 
he flees to the wilderness. He's taking care of sheep in the wilderness. And in a lot of ways, it seems that his life is forgotten. That he's going to simply end out his days taking care of sheep. And remember, Moses was born with promise. His life was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh was killing all of the boys as they were born. But God saved his life. Grew up in Pharaoh's house, but came to understand that he was a Hebrew. I think that he knew that there was calling upon his life. But all that had went on the shelf because he killed this Egyptian. You know, if you were applying for a job in ministry and you put murderer down there, how do you think that goes? But God chooses the weak. God chooses the foolish. God chooses those who are forgotten, whose life seems to be defined by failure. And you may be sitting here tonight and you go, that's me. Failure is in my life. I've done things that I never thought I would do. In a moment, I looked to see if anybody was watching and I entered into some sin and it's cost me dearly and I think my calling is dead and gone. God speaks to Moses and he speaks to you. No, it's not dead and gone. God's a God of redemption and God of, of grace. We think of what a great leader Moses was and his leadership was birthed out of his failure. In verse 1, chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Oh, by the way, he's got to work for his father-in-law. That's never fun. The priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush doesn't burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. In our failure, God knows our name. In our failure, he calls us by name. He's calling to Moses, Moses, Moses. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Remember, God's calling is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God's glory and those that are in suffering. God's hearing the prayers of the Israelites, and he's calling Moses to be an answer of those prayers. And a lot of times we think that God's calling is about us. It's not about us. It's about God's desire to reach people, to set people free, for people to know the love of Jesus Christ, to answer prayers. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Outosites. Just seeing if you're listening. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen also the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I think earlier in Moses' life, he would have responded, I'm the one that can go challenge Pharaoh. I've been inside of the family. But now he's humbled. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he spent in Egypt learning that he was somebody. The next 40 years of his life was in the wilderness where he learned that he was nobody. But the last 40 years of his life, he learned that God can use anybody. So here he's wrestling, saying, I cannot go and do this. Ever been there with God's calling? Like, who am I to go do what God is asking me to do? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Don't you love this? God speaks to Moses and says, I am that I am. The great I am is sending you. It's based on my authority. As we think of God's calling, we look at the great I am, his ability, not our ability. So the rest of chapter 3, God describes the work that he's going to do to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, the beginning of chapter 4, Moses is still wrestling. Then Moses, verse 1, answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses is saying, well, what if I go and no one believes? What if the children of Israel don't believe that you spoke to me? And we have all of these excuses or arguments with God's calling. And that may be where you are at tonight. As you came in, you really weren't expecting for the Lord to challenge you. You're thinking calling is for somebody else. And you've been having this ongoing conversation of why God's calling is, is not for you. So God gives two signs to Moses, says, throw your rod down. It turns to a snake, pick it up by the tail, turns back to a rod. That's pretty cool. Stick your hand into your coat. You've got leprosy. Stick it back in. You're healed. That's pretty amazing. It's clear that God is calling, but Moses is still wrestling. In verse 10 of chapter 4, then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. 
Moses is saying, I'm the wrong guy. I, I can't go speak to Pharaoh. Moses must have had difficulty with stuttering. He's slow of speech. He had a hard time getting his words out. I want to suggest something to you tonight for you to pray through. I think God actually calls us in our areas of weakness, not in our areas of strength. A worldly perspective is, well, these are my strengths. These are my natural gifts. And we would assume that that's where God would use us. And that may be true, but oftentimes he's going to call you in a place that you're weak. Because when you're weak, then you're forced to rely upon God's strength. I grew up and I had a really difficult time uh, learning to read. I didn't really begin to read at all until the summer before fourth grade. And reading continued to be uh, difficult throughout junior high and, and high school and, and even into to college to the point where in middle school, in one history class, the history teacher would just have the students read a paragraph or two and then he would talk about it and go around the room. And I just dreaded for it to come to me, trying to read out loud and everybody's laughing and absolutely brutal. And I think I graduated high school with maybe a fifth or sixth grade reading level, right? I never read a book till I got to Bible college, no joke. Like when there was a book report that was given, I would just find some way around it. So when God started to put a call in my life to teach the word, I was like, uh, really, I've got to read in front of people? Uh, it's still difficult for me to read. It, it's, not a, it's not an easy process for, for me to, to go through. It'd make a lot of sense for me not to do what I do uh, every week. But God calls us out of a place of weakness, doesn't he? he? But if we're not careful, we'll allow our weaknesses to keep us from God's call. In verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? That is intense. God is saying, I'm the one who made the person blind. I'm the one who made the person mute. Moses, I'm the one who made you with this speech impediment and I'm going to use it for my glory. We've got to know that he has created these weaknesses that we carry in our lives. Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. What an amazing promise. Moses continues to struggle, continues to wrestle with God. God gets angry and says, okay, I'm going to send Aaron to be your mouth, your spokesman. As you study the story of Moses and Aaron, Aaron's really just a pain in Moses' side. It really wasn't God's intent. God's intent was to, to teach Moses. So that's Moses called out of weakness. Now let's look at Gideon. Let's go to the book of Judges. Turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. So to paint the scene for what's taking place in Judges is the children of Israel have been in the promised land, been in idolatry, 
God puts them under the thumb of the Midianites. They call out to God. God hears their prayers. God's going to raise up a judge. God's going to raise up a deliverer from an unlikely source, an unlikely place, and it's Gideon, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpah, which belonged to Joash, the Asbarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites would wait till harvest, then they would come in and they would take the food. They would take the livestock. So Gideon's in a place of fear. He's hiding down in the winepress to thresh his wheat, which would make the whole process much more difficult. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I'm sure Gideon's going, what? Uh, I think you got the wrong guy here. I'm down here hiding from the Midianites in fear. And God comes and says to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And this was so amazing about God's calling is he sees something in us that's not yet. And I see that in God's calling upon the disciples. Simon, who Jesus named Peter, God saw this man going from shifting sand to a rock fortress. And we have to understand that about God's calling. We're not there yet. We'll never arrive, but the Lord sees something that he wants to do in our lives. I I want you to hear this and grasp this in your heart tonight is one of the ways that God teaches us about himself and grows our character is by calling us to service, calling us to steps of faith. Gideon is going to learn more about the Lord and experience transformation in his character as he stepped into the calling that God had for him. God rarely calls us when we're ready. It's kind of like, are you ever ready to be a parent? So he's going to call, and you won't learn what the Lord intended about himself. And also, we won't experience the growth unless we step into that calling. God sees what we will become. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his mercies, which our fathers told us about, saying... Did the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. What Gideon leaves out is their sin, their idolatry. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? What I love is the Lord doesn't even answer his question. He pretty much says, be quiet, Gideon, and go do what I've told you to do. You are going to save Israel from the Midianites. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. (laughs) This is what I believe God's heart is in these crazy times that we're living in. It's dark. It's confusing. There's challenges everywhere that we turn. God is wanting to raise up warriors 
He's wanting to raise up men and women that are in love with Jesus, that are ready to go take the message of Jesus Christ out. Just like he was doing in Gideon's time. But will we be willing to step into his call that he has for our lives? We're alive right now. God created us for such a time as this. He's put us in different facets of life and to be able to step into what the Holy Spirit has for us. So Gideon is given a sign by the Lord. He makes a sacrifice upon the altar. God consumes it with fire, a a pretty amazing sign that's given to Gideon. And then God says, let's go. Go tear down your dad's altar to Baal. He does that. Everyone wakes up in the morning and the altar to Baal has been destroyed. Who did this? Gideon did this. And Gideon's dad has the wisdom to say, well, if Baal is God, then he can defend himself. And at the end of this, we see the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east gather. Verse 33 of chapter 6 Then all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Earlier in this chapter, it says that these people were like locusts. There's so many of the enemy, they're like locusts. We've got Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east, and they're all coming to the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, then he blew the trumpet, And the Asperites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. He gets the word out. He blows the trumpet. The spirit of God comes on Gideon and says, let's go, let's go. Do you ever feel that from the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's like, let's go. It's time. It's time for action. It's time, time for battle. And four tribes come and respond to Gideon. And at this moment, Gideon's like, what in the world did I get myself into? (laughs) I don't know if God's calling me. Even though I experienced God consuming the offering on the altar with fire. So he does this whole thing with a fleece. And he puts the fleece out and asks that the fleece would be wet and the ground would be dry and then does the exact opposite and, and God is gracious to, to meet him in that as he's, he's wrestling with his call. And then things get really interesting in, in chapter 7. Stay with me. That Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the well of Arad so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gibeon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Sometimes I don't like God's economics. You know what I'm saying? God's like, I got to reduce you. Reduce your power, reduce your resources, reduce your strength, because you're going to try to take the glory for this. We're going to read that there was 22,000 of the Israelites that are ready to go against the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east. They were already grossly outnumbered. There's so many of the enemy, they're like locusts that you can't even count. And God's like, nope, 
There, there's too many. So God tells Gideon, ask everybody who's afraid to go home. And so Gideon does, and 10,000 walk. That's what we see in verse 3. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Excuse me. So there was 32,000 to begin with. 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. If I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, man, we're definitely small enough. Now we're only down to 10,000. We had 32,000, 22,000 walked. And the Lord says, no, you guys are still too big. And God reduces the army down to 300. And the way that he does that is they go to a brook and they drink water. And most of the men just put their face right into the water. But 300 of them take the water into their hand. God says it's only those 300 that get to go into battle. Now you're 300 going up against an army that can't be numbered. And you're going to have to go home and read the rest because God does a great victory with 300. An incredible victory with 300. We think our failure disqualifies us. Nope. We look at Moses. We think our weakness, our lack of resources, I don't have the strength, I don't have the time, that disqualifies us. No, look at Gideon. God loves to work through weakness. He loves when we get to the place where we're at the end of ourselves, we don't have the strength, and we're relying upon him. Let's lastly look at David. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, this will be our last text. Saul's king, he's walked away from the Lord. God speaks to Samuel that he's going to raise up a new king. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? God's work is never dependent upon one individual. They fall, they sin. God's work doesn't stop. How long are you going to mourn for Saul? Seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. God says, go to Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to find the new king. Already, this is going to a place of weakness because Bethlehem's a small town. Bethlehem is where they take care of the sheep. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named you. Very clear. God says, I'm picking the next king. Saul was man's choice. This is going to be God's choice. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, saying, Do you come peaceably? <laughs> I guess Samuel had quite the reputation. The elders are fearful, going, Man, is Samuel coming to bring judgment? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right, guys, come to the, the sacrifice. So it was. 
when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looks at the oldest. He's like, man, he's big. He's strong. He's wise. He's got experience. He checked out his resume on ZipRecruiter. It was awesome. It's like, this this has got to be the Lord's anointed to be the next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord doesn't see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Two applications for this. One in our own lives is when God's looking at calling and for someone that he's sending, he doesn't look through human perspective. He doesn't look at strength. He doesn't look at resume. He doesn't look at education. What does he look at? He looks at heart. What did David have? David was a worshiper. As he was out spending time with the sheep, we know from the Psalms he was worshiping God. He was a man after God's own heart. And with all of David's weaknesses and sin, he never stopped worshiping the Lord. He never fell into idolatry. Fell into a lot of other things, but he didn't fall into idolatry. And God sees the heart and says, I'm not choosing on intellect. I'm not choosing on earthly wisdom or stature. I'm choosing on heart. So we apply that in our own hearts and lives. What really matters to the Lord is our hearts, that heart of worship. And secondly, if the Lord allows us to be in a position like Samuel, we can't look at other people's calling through a human perspective. We've got to try to see how God sees and discern for God's voice. Because we're just looking at three examples. We're just looking at Moses, Gideon, and also David. But this is throughout scripture. We see it in the lives of the disciples of God using the weak and foolish for those that are surrendered to him. So we might miss out on somebody that God is calling. And God's got to speak to us the same way that he spoke to Samuel and said, hey, you need to see things from my perspective. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, not this guy either. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oldest to youngest, I'm sure. Nope. 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 And Samuel probably kind of ashamedly asks, "Uh, do you possibly have any more sons? Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes or or red hair and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David is not even invited to the party. You know what I'm saying? 
Like he is so forgotten by his dad and his brothers. They're like, they're, they're, there's just no possible way that it could be David. Let's just leave him out with the sheep. Somebody has got to be watching the sheep. And you may feel like I'm the youngest. I'm the, I'm the forgotten. And God's calling is not dependent upon age, whether you're young or old or somewhere in between. And a lot of times we find our way to disqualify ourselves because of age. We go, oh, I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I'm too middle-aged. You know, nobody will, will listen to me. No, that, that, that's not a factor. What was David doing when he was with the sheep? He was being faithful. He protected those sheep from predators. He's being a worshiper. But yet, from the perspective of his family, he's too young for God's call. We fast forward to David and Goliath. Here's this young man. No one wants to face Goliath. But because David knows who God is, God's able to defeat this giant who's defying God's glory and goes out with a rock, defeats the greatest warrior the Philistines have, the greatest warrior in the land, in a way that most people would consider to be absolute nonsense. That's what Goliath thought. I picture Goliath with this big belly laugh, just laughing at David, like, you're coming at me with those stones, right? Before you know it, he didn't even know what hit him. And David's walking around with his head. Who received the glory for that? God did. That's a victory that God had won. You see how God uses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. So tonight, as we take communion and we spend some time with the Lord, what is it that God's calling you to? Because we know from Scripture, from Ephesians chapter 2, that we're all called by the Lord. That we're saved by grace for good works, which he has prepared beforehand. So the calling is already there. And it's not the size of the calling that matters. It's faithfulness that matters. And I think we can really relate with Moses and we can relate with Gideon who wrestled with their call saying, I don't want to do this. You ever feel that way? Moses even goes on to ask the Lord, could you please send somebody else? And you may be in the midst of calling and you're trying to get away from it. Calling in your marriage, calling with your family, calling in the midst of God's people, calling with, with unbelievers but the Holy Spirit's moving. And you know that the Lord's placed you with where you're at. And maybe it's been a long time since we've ever gone before the Lord and considered that the Lord may have some fresh and new things for us. Maybe we've walked in a particular path for such a long time that we have forgot the possibility that the Lord could do something new and different in our lives. When God got a hold of Saul's life and he became Paul, he was humbled and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I think that Paul meant it. He goes before the Lord and he says, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And a lot of times when I approach the Lord, I say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I got three good options for you. A, B, and C. Then 
you're out of choices. Like, I'll serve you, but I really want it to be in this particular way. I almost never made it out to Colorado. There was a need for a youth pastor at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And initially I, I called the leadership out here and I said, I'm not interested. I don't want to move to Colorado. And in my own conversation with the Lord, I was like, God, I'll serve you anywhere in Oregon, Washington, or Northern Idaho. You know, I, I honestly didn't even pray about it. And then six weeks later, I've just felt convicted of the Holy Spirit to, hey, they're offering to fly you out. Call them up and see if they're still looking. And I had to humble myself. Are you guys still looking for a youth pastor? Yeah, here, we'll buy you a ticket and come out. And the rest was, was history. I almost missed out on one of the biggest blessings of my life because I was stuck in the Northwest in my mind. And I still love the Northwest, but I don't think I'd want to go back. It rains too much there. We have beautiful sunshine here. I remember when I, when I moved here in February of 2000, everything was in my Honda Accord and it snowed a bunch on my way out. I was driving into South Denver, I-25, hit Castle Rock, and there was all this fresh snow on Pikes Peak. And you know that view when you're driving south on I-25. And I remember just telling the Lord, Lord, thank you for calling me here. This is such a, a beautiful place. And the Lord knew me better than I knew myself, right? But we can miss out on what God has for us because we're like, no, this doesn't fit into my plan. This doesn't fit into my agenda. To be able to surrender afresh to the Lord. I believe this in, in my heart of hearts is, is I really do think God is, is moving in these times that we're, we're living in. And there's a lot of hurting people and there's a lot of lost people. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to pursue the lost. The question is, are we gonna participate in what God's doing? And this is where life gets really exciting. My life has purpose. I'm not just taking up empty space. But Lord, what do you have me for me today? Make it simple. Lord, what do you have for me today? How can I serve you today? How can I enter into the calling that you have for me? And please don't think that calling means that everybody's going to work at a church or everybody's going to work at a Christian ministry or everybody's going to be a, a full-time mi missionary. Because if that were true, then the lost wouldn't be reached. Like calling is serving the Lord with where he places you and where he places me. And that's different for all of us. But we can go to work and earn a paycheck, or we can go to work and say, Lord, I'm an ambassador for you. You know, we can go to the flag football league that our kids are in and sign our kids up for an activity, which is a blessing, or we can go there and say, Lord, I'm on mission for you. There's some lost people here on my kids' team, and Lord, help me to love them. Help me to go in with this mindset Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want, I want to do what you have for me to do. Because Jesus is coming back and life is short. So let's, let's serve him. What's the calling? What's the calling that God has in your life? And the amazing thing is, is as we look at him and we step into what he has for us, he'll do the work. He'll do the work. It's not about us. It's, it's about him. Amen? So let's stand together and let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you've called us unto yourself. 
into relationship with you. Your body was broken. Your blood was shed. Thank you that you've called us into good works, large and small. Would you remind us of that calling, Lord, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in your church, with unbelievers? And we do get overwhelmed sometimes by that calling, but you're able. He who calls is also faithful to do it. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us during this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.